0: Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, A collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, Kevin Myatt, Director of Global Brand Services at BlueSign, talks to students about the intricacies of the supply network, the responsibility of brands for creating a more sustainable system, and the opportunity for students to take on these challenges.
1: I have worked now for Blue Sign for about nine years, and my role at Blue Sign is uh, is as you will see is is actually working with brands, um, and um, what we do or what I do is I actually help brands understand what their trajectory is. On their path towards uh, a, a more sustainable future, primarily around chemical integrity. And we'll talk about what that is in a, in a minute. But, um, but it's broader than that. It, you know, you, you chemistry touches upon so much in our products uh, that um, it has effect on water and energy and climate and all the other impacts. It has social impacts, huge social impacts as well. Um so I've now worked for Blue Sign for 9 plus years um um and I'm really dating myself because um prior to Blue Sign I got my my brand cred working at REI um where I worked there for 27 years and um in that uh uh organization I you know when you're there for 27 years you get to reinvent yourself a few times um I was uh overseeing all the product research, testing, um, the uh, the the private brand group helped re engineer the private brand group at REI. So a lot of supply chain work, a lot of product development work, materials work. Um, uh, opened our offices in in China, um, you know, first offices uh, outside of uh, of uh, the Seattle area office um, that we have or had at the time. Um, But it was there also that I really cut my teeth in sustainability. And and it was, in fact, a big career shift for me, um, moving out of purely being focused on quality research, testing, product development. Um, But really becoming solely focused on sustainability um, because it was sustainability was one of those things that kind of came to me, uh, like many of my generation who have been involved in this for some time. I didn't really choose it as a path, but it became obvious the things that we were doing um, in the outdoor industry, in the apparel industry was so impactful that we really needed to address some of these challenges. You'll also get it. I, I, I love good quotes. Um, um, uh, we have a finite environment, the planet. Anyone who thinks that we can have a fi- infinite growth in a finite environment is either a madman or an economist. Um, uh, here's a great picture uh, from Tim Peterson from um, uh, your beautiful state of Utah, Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monument. So when we talk about the apparel industry specific or the textile industry. Um, it's really important to note the growth of the industry. Um, we are on this path every 15 years doubling the amount of production that we are creating um, uh, on 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 a textile on you know, you know, on an annual basis, how much textile is that? It's 400 billion square meters of fabric in 2015, and in in projection, I don't have the actual numbers that in 2021. And COVID might have affected this a little bit. It was over um, 500 billion square yards of fabric, and and probably the most important uh, point on this slide is that the, the bottom one translates into a production per capita. On the globe of 17 kilos per person, and in 2030, which which um, which is greater than where we were uh, a decade earlier. Uh, so the point is not only are we growing, but is growing in you know, uh, in the amount per person. So we're consuming a lot more. Um, just to put that in perspective, because I know those are just big numbers, um, think of it as, Enough textiles to cover the entire state of California, and they, these are kind of older numbers. So I'm in Central Oregon. We're beginning to uh, creep up into maybe you know a uh, Klamath Lake, uh, Crater Lake area, uh, uh, and and eventually we'll be up in Bend and 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 and, and Sisters where I live. So it's enormous amount of textiles that are being produced on an annual basis. And with that comes a lot of impact. We don't know specifically how much, um, what the actual carbon footprint is of the uh, apparel industry because the the data, as you will see, is somewhat fuzzy on how we gather it and how we actually manage it. Um, Is it 2%, is it 6%, is it 10%? Numbers like that have been thrown out as to what's the actual impact of the industry. um, but we do know that it's significant. Um, and we do know also that it's not just about climate. It's about water and it's about chemistry. Enormous amount of chemical, um, uh, 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 chemistry is being made on a daily basis for, uh, the apparel. Uh, And textile industry, over 40,000 different types of chemicals are identified by what this legislation in Europe called REACH um, has identified used just in the textile industry. And we still see to this day practices of direct discharge of dye stuff to the environment. Um, hopefully not in supply chains that you guys are going to be working in, but it still happens and we have to continually our vigilance on, on making things better. So I'm going to go through this diagram pretty quickly. There's a, there's a URL if you want to, if you want to download it, some people either love it or they hate it, but it's, but it's reality. And this is something that as we work on a global effort to address sustainability. It was really important that we had a common language of what exactly is this supply network, because it's complex. And by the way, I don't refer to it as a supply chain, because it's not a chain. Um, It's truly a network. So it's made up with consumers on one end and earth on the other. Um, And then if you take it and layer by layer, consider it. You have brands, And you have retailers and you have retailers that are brands and brands that are retailers. I worked at REI. We were both, we were primarily a retailer, but we had our own private brand and we sold a lot of other brands in the organization. Um, This is a stylized diagram, by the way, you'll see. This is not, you can probably plug in who might be examples in this space, but size of bubble matters because there's big ones, there's small ones in this whole process. So what we refer to as tier one is where primary finished goods manufacturing is happening. Um, And this is where stuff comes together to become the product that we love and we use throughout the outdoor industry. The other thing to recognize here is that there's also a lot of subcontracting going on, all those little bubbles. um, There's a fair amount of subcontracting that's happening at tier one. Um, What we refer to as tier two is where finished materials are created. So it it may start with the weaving, the knitting, the molding, the the pelletization of of plastics uh, um, to the dyeing, printing, coating, finishing of materials. Um, It's a really complex process. And oh, yes, there's a lot of subcontracting that goes on here as well. Tier three is where materials really take their shape. Um, so it's the spinning of yarn. It's the, it's the pelletization of plastic. It's, it's a, 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 um, a lot of things that um, become the components that go into making the materials that we know as part of our products. And then tier four is really where stuff comes from. And it can come from many sources. It could be agriculture. It could be extractive industries. It could be ores. It could be, um, you know, a a petroleum product. Um, It could be a natural fiber. It could be wood that gets turned into a a cellulosic. Also, more and more, it's becoming um, part of the loop back into recycling. Recycling comes back into tier four um, to become part of our products of the future. There's two other layers that are missing in this diagram that are important from the textile space. One is what we refer to as agents, trading companies, or licensees. Now, these are gray because they really don't have necessarily physical places where product is made or materials are made. Some do. They may own it. But most of them are really about organizations that know the network and can build the future uh, or build the build the product. And then another area we call converters, where we have um a a, a, these are organizations are highly focused on materials and developing materials. So if you go to the outdoor retailer trade show, a good half of the the what you think are are mills there or. Or textile manufacturers are really not textile manufacturers. They're converters. They have relationships, and they know the best mills to produce those materials. Why this diagram is actually pretty special, and actually, it was a colleague of mine at REI. Um, I assigned him a, a task of doing a presentation, and he he identified that not only is this stratification uh, important on the um, in the textile world, but also in the chemical world as well. Chemistry is not tier five. Chemistry comes into the network in tier one. If you're doing laundry for jeans and denim, um, it's where wet processing happens there. In tier two, it can come in Tremendous amount of chemistry. From you can just look at it: dyeing, printing, coating, lamination. All of that requires chemistry to um, happen. Um, in tier three, you have yarns, and you may have oils that go along with that. You may have cleaners, surfactants, as we refer to them, or uh, the 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 pelletization, the creating, the polymerization of of materials um, that go into making that. Um, And then tier four, there's lots of different chemicals or chemistries that are necessary there, whether it's extractive industries uses chemistry. Agriculture uses a lot of chemistry, pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, what have you. Um, And then even in recycling requires chemistry to happen. So this first layer of chemistry is what we refer to as a chemical trader or a reseller, and it might in fact be a big chemical company that actually makes molecules, but it might not be it might be someone just like a material converter above um they're just they just know where chemicals molecules can be made um, then the next layer down in chemicals is where formulation occurs it's where uh, they they 're not making new stuff this isn 't your high school chemistry. A, you know, chemical A plus chemical B, add heat and pressure, and you end up with chemical C. They're just basically blending. Uh, and this is a big part of the industry. Um, when you talk about water, durable water repellents, a lot of them are you know, ideas that come from chemical traders or chemical converters and know where to buy molecules. And they work with blenders to make those uh, chemistries. Um, You don't get to places where new molecules, new chemicals are being made until you're three layers down into that network. Um, This is where true synthesis occurs, where you're making new chemistry. Um, Some companies span all three of those layers. Uh, Some are just You're just focused on making molecules. Um, And then way, way, way upstream, um, you have the petrochemical companies. This is Exxon. This is BP. These are some companies you know, and you think of them as gas companies, but the reality is they're just as much of a petrochemical um, company as they are a a gasoline company. Uh, And there's many that you don't know of, because their focus is just primarily around chemistry. and that's where chemicals are actually ultimately extracted, uh, whether it be from petroleum or from, from uh, agriculture sources and turned into what we refer to as monomers that become the, uh, the polymers and the chemistries that we use all through our network. So this crazy diagram with all its nodes and its things is, I say, an oversimplified perspective of the network that we work in to bring products to market. And you can download a copy um, of that right there. Um, and it, I'll make this presentation available as well if if anybody wants to have it afterward. So let's talk about sustainability in the supply network. Um, and you'll see where this diagram becomes helpful because it's going to be a backdrop for a lot of things I'll talk about today. Um, what are the hotspots? What are the things that um, places where um, uh, sustainability, traditionally, where you know, sustainability is really made up of three components. It's environmental, social, and governance. We're not going to really talk about the governance component of this here. We're going to really talk about the environmental and social components of sustainability. So at tier one, um, it's really labor-intensive. And so this can happen at various places in the world where labor can be abused, where hours work can abu- be abused, low pay, discrimination, a whole host of other things are important. So really being on top of that is critical for any organization that's uh, that saying that they have sustainability um, or the social side of sustainability under check. Um, There's environmental impacts there as well. I mean, not as much as you'll see in the rest of the space. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of material waste. Um, You know, every time you cut something to cut and sew, you have wastage and that you put a lot of time and energy and chemistry in making that happen. And so it's embedded a lot of impact. So these are things that you want to manage and mitigate when you're doing this. If you're doing laundry, At this level here, there's a lot of water and energy and carbon footprint as well. Tier 2 is where you're going to see a lot of impact, both on the social and environmental side. From From a social side, it's not as labor intensive. You have a lot of machinery as opposed to a lot of people. You do have people. The problem is that you may have a lot of exposure to things here, whether it's physical harm from crushing or or cutting or what have you um, to actual exposure to chemistry that can be quite challenging. And so there's occupational health and safety issues at tier two. Um, there's enormous amount of environmental impact at tier two. Um, the, the most water intensive part of our entire network, um, uh, the biggest carbon footprint, you'll see that in a minute. Um, uh, and as we already said, a lot of chemical use. A lot of the chemicals, you'll see, are not staying here. Um, they're not going out with a bulk roll of fabric. Um, they're actually being used in this particular space. Um, tier 4, uh, and we're going to skip over. We're not going to cover the whole thing. Tier 4, obviously, um, it's very distant from you as a brand if you're in the brand space. But there's lots of labor issues. So if anyone's ever heard of the challenge with the cotton out of Northwest China and the Uyghur population with forced labor, um, this is exactly what's going on in this space here. This is, this is something that is quite a challenge. And it's hugely difficult for a brand to be able to see and manage that because it's so far up their network. Um, but there's also... Enormous environmental impact at that space as well. Um, uh, There, there can be um, uh, you know chemistry being applied to fields and 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 the runoff from that to the actual ore extraction and you know the the issues with mining and and um, or the um, even the production of chemistry um, that um, that you have a lot of wastage and a lot of that being hazardous and so that's a big um, challenge in that space when you actually talk about the chemical world, um, you know, this also, again, very far from where I operate as a brand, but can have serious occupational health and safety issues. Um, I, I did a presentation at the OR show a number of years ago, not that long ago, and had a video of an explosion in China. I said, does anyone know what happened here? And, and no one really did. It's like 85 people died here. But I could actually do the math and equate it to about a third of the polyester in that building. Um, and, and it was, you know, it, and it was because the, the, the environmental health and safety, uh, occupational health and safety issues were not being managed well enough and completely opaque to the rest of the industry. Um, and then, of course, environmental impact uh, that can happen in a space that's so far from us, and there's c- potentially toxic chemistry, high, high water imp- imp- uh, uh, impacts, carbon footprint, and all of that. So you get a sense that there's, there's a lot of things going on in that space. So I wanted to share with you, we don't know exactly what the carbon footprint of the outdoor industry or the apparel textile industry is, but we do know where the biggest impacts are. Um, many studies corroborate and actually show that the biggest impacts are going to happen right there in tier two. Um, energy. Almost 50 percent of the energy use is going to happen in the making of materials. Um, you know, a, a huge amount of of water use. The only other big areas of water use is at, at tier four. Because there's agriculture involved and there's extractive industries involved there. Uh, it takes a lot of water to actually extract, do fracking and create you know, some of those challenges. But our climate impact, again, half of the impact is going to happen right there in tier two. So you may, as a brand, not know exactly your footprint, but you should be knowing where you should be focused on how you improve it. So what is this responsibility from an impact perspective? Um, This is something else that I hope that you download and read. It's a free download, again, at that location. But just remember, roadmap to net zero, delivering science-based targets in the apparel sector. A Couple of things to remember here. Um, First of all, remember, the apparel sector is not a huge part of the globe. When we talk about our climate impact, it's it's significant, but no, but there's a lot more. I mean, if it's four percent or three percent, it's you know there's a there, there's significant, but there's a huge amount of elsewhere. So if we consider what is our role as an industry to be in check with the Paris Agreement of of keeping warming to one and a half you know a uh, degrees centigrade or less. What is the role of the industry? How much do we have to change? How much do we have to affect this to actually stay on this 1.5 degree pathway? So in this, in this document, there's a wonderful diagram because it really tells the story. Back in 2019, as an industry, think of the apparel sector, and this includes footwear as well, um, as being about a gigaton of carbon. Um, and and a business-as-usual path, we're going to be at 2030, one and a half gigatons. But in, to keep this one and a half degree pathway, we need to be around half a gigaton. That's a, that's a 45% reduction on um, where we're going business as usual. And I don't know if lately if you looked at the calendar, but we're in 2023 right now. And honestly, we're probably close to that 2023 of 1.2 gigatons. So we're not talking about a 45% reduction anymore. That line has just gotten steeper. We're running out of time. And this 2030 number is really important because 2030 is when we have some irretrievable uh, uh, impacts, that if we're not staying at this 1.5 degree, we're, we're gonna overshoot 1.5 degrees at our current trajectory. So the role of the industry is really, really important. The problem is um, as a brand, uh, individual company, how you actually measure this. Um, uh, I, I love this. This is actually a colleague of me and a colleague of mine at REI who basically uses this, really tells a story. Our goal may be home plate. Our hope is if we're to really footprint is maybe we're in the parks and place. The reality we're somewhere out in the Bay. Um, we do not have the data and the information we need to really fully understand our impact as an individual company. It's really, really hard. So you've probably heard circularity. Everyone says, Hey, we're, we've gone circular. We're now a circular business. We are part of the circular economy. Eh, it's a good thing, right? I mean, yeah, I think so. Um, there's a wonderful diagram that comes from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. It's called the butterfly diagram. You can see why they kind of call it that. But on the right-hand side, think of it, and this is very pertinent to the outdoor industry. Most of the things that we do in the outdoor industry, I mean, we do have natural fibers for sure, but a good portion of them are not. They are synthetic. And so these are what we refer to as the technical cycle. And so how do you keep... Things circular. How do you make things circular? Well, the more that you stay closer to the middle of the butterfly, the better. So maintain things, reuse things. Recycle is part of that um of, of that circularity. However, it's not the, the best thing you want to do because uh, I mean, you certainly don't want to throw and trash things, you want to keep you know, molecules in circulation. And So if recycling is your pathway to do that, great. Don't throw it away. But you need to do other things first. It's not the most effective way to do that. And why is that? Well, if you go back to the diagram, remember, recycling comes back into tier four. Um, most of the processes with most of their impacts happen after you get to a, rec- a recycled feedstock again, because remember, a good half of the climate impact is going to happen in your tier two. So you could be recycling all these wonderful and in- sell the story about a water bottle being recycled, how many you've kept out of the landfill, but you've only really impacted the impact at tier four, not at tier three, not at tier two, not at tier one, where most of the impact is. And then chemistry is anything but circular. Most of the chemistry comes back into the market or back into, into the product, um, uh, you know, further down market. And so it's like the, it's really, really important to understand that recycling can be a positive thing by keeping things out of the landfill. But it's not the only thing. And so if your story is only how many bottles you kept out of the landfill, it's just a, a really small part of the story. So we're going to finish up talking about chemicals and chemical integrity, and I promise there won't be too many diagrams of molecules here. I'm not a chemist, by the way. You can see over my shoulder a a periodic table. I am not a chemist. Uh, I have that there to remind myself I'm not a chemist. Uh, I have some wonderful chemists that I can rely on working at BlueSign. Uh, and uh, and that is fantastic uh, because there's some quite challenging issues that we face on a day-in-day basis in the, um, in the textile and the apparel and the outdoor industry. And I would get these questions all the time when I worked at a brand. Hey, uh, are there any chemicals in your product? And, and Or if somebody would say, hey, this is chemical-free. It's like, no, it's not. Because the answer is, are there any chemicals in your product is absolutely. In fact, I never apologize for that. It didn't matter if it was organic or it was a natural fiber or a synthetic fiber. Absolutely. We like color. We like performance. We like things that you know, make products better. And chemistry is often one of the big parts of that. Chemistry is not the problem. Um, chemistry is often a solution. Bad chemistry, however, is a big problem. And that's what we need to be focused on and managing. Um, and why do we do this here? Because it's it, it, there's many reasons: non-compliance with a regulation, non—you know—a rapidly evolving market, reputational damage. I mean, I lived through um, uh, at REI the uh, issues around bisphenol A or BPA, and um, and the reality was that um, uh, we were not going to throw away seven railroad cars worth of. Poly, of, of um, polycarbonate bottles um, because we just now came to the industry came to the conclusion that we cannot be selling things with bPA in them um, so really the markets can change and you need to be ahead of that um, um, supply chain interruption if you're not paying attention to chem, paying attention to chemistry um, you can have some serious problems interruptions into your supply network. And then more and more of I mean you guys are going to go work at brands, most likely. Um, more and more brands are very aware that the next generation and and hopefully some of this generation and, and generations that have come before it really care about this here. It's part of our, it's part of our life. We need to be addressing it. And a brand needs to show that they are connected with both their own their values are connected with their employees' values, and then if you're publicly traded, it's becoming really clear that you need to be um, you need to be uh, aware of this because it's all a part of of being a responsible organization in the uh, in that industry. So, water policy. You know what? Uh, probably one very topical subject right now. Um, I, I, and I lived through this as well uh, in my many years in 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 a brand and, and in retail. Um, you know, we move from what we refer to as long-chain PFAS to short-chain PFAS. You may have heard the term PFAS. You may have heard PFCs as well. Don't use that term. It's not the correct one. PFAS is the correct one. Um, to non-fluorine. Sometimes people call it C0. That's also an incorrect, A term. But we don't like to get wet when we go outdoors. We want to have um, water beat up and roll off our fabrics. Um, But the chemistries that we've used for years for that are quite challenging. But what we don't want to do is move out of what we know as bad chemistry into another bad chemistry we refer to as a regrettable substitution. So being really um, you know clear and 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 purposeful in, in any of these choices is really important. So here's an important thing to consider, a concept to consider. So you all you all know the what the supply network is right now. And so let's take tier two, a typical textile manufacturer. Um, there's three inputs into that textile manufacturer: materials, water, and energy. And and In this particular example, we're producing a bulk row of fabric. Um, And that's what you think about. Okay, great. Produces a bulk row of fabric. By the way, chemicals is just another material. So that's why I didn't refer to it as a fourth input. Um, So chemistry is just another material. There's also a lot of other outputs that you don't think about. There is waste materials that come out of that facility. There's waste water that comes out of that facility. There's actually a lot of emission that comes out of that facility. Because when you consider of the 100% of the chemistry that came in on that loading dock, only 10% of it is going to go out with that bulk roll of materials. So 90% of those chemicals are going to go someplace else. Sometimes they're recycled, but not often. It's usually chemistry is take, use, dump. It's why it's not circular at all. And we talked about that a few a few minutes ago, um, but a good portion of it's going out in wastewater, and a good number of it is going up the smokestack and out as an air emission. And many of these chemicals are known carcinogens, they're known reproductive toxins, they're known mutagens. These are can be quite challenging chemistries, and so managing this is critically important. Um, well. We know that our our NGOs are keeping us uh, um, on the task and it's important that they do, whether it's Greenpeace or IPE or a whole host of others that have, I mean, there's been a lot been said about PFAS of late, and that's really, really important. Um, from a regulatory perspective, brands, I mean, I'm constantly coaching brands right now on how they're going to deal with the fact that PFAS is going away. It has to go away. And whether it's in uh, the EU, in California, or Maine, or I don't think Utah has really made it a, a big deal yet, but it doesn't matter. If you're selling product as a brand or a retailer, it, 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 the fact that it's in one state, but not another, you have to go to the, to the most restringent regulatory challenge. Um, and then there's the happy consumer. Because the happy consumer, Thinks that you as a brand, you're on it. You're paying attention to this stuff here. And you saw how complicated that network is. And the reality is, as a brand, you're 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 scrambling, you're struggling to, to, to actually do it. 27 years working in a brand, thinking I was controlling it. Only took about a year of working at BlueSign, saying, Oh my gosh, we were not doing what we thought we were doing. So Blue Sign approved. You've some of you say you know what it is. You've heard of it before. There's a lot of other options out there. Um, what I want to do is kind of finish up saying what's what's special about the fact that something is a Blue Sign approved. It could be a Blue Sign approved material, or it could be a Blue Sign approved chemistry, or it could be even a Blue Sign product. Uh, and more and more of those are coming onto the marketplace. Well, Blue Sign started as a project back in. Um, uh, uh, the nineties. Um, and it was yet another chemical failure that happened that was, a, I believe a soccer Jersey that, um, and, and, and the company, the brand that was working on it felt like they were doing whack-a-mole Because goes every time they thought they fixed it, it popped up someplace else. Um, it 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 took that brand, it took a manufacturer of materials and a chemical company to come together and say, let's come up with a better way to do this. Let's not play whack a mole. Let's let's be proactive in how we solve these problems. Um, it was turned into a company back in twenty uh, in the year two thousand, and now we have over seven hundred what we refer to as system partners that are part of the Blue Sign organization. And there's only about a hundred employees um, worldwide. There's our main offices are in Switzerland, but we have we're very distributed across the world. Like I said, I'm, I'm in uh, Central Oregon. So fundamentally, Blue Sign is all about this. Think about when you are trying to solve a problem, and I manage quality for 20 years, so it's very near and dear to me. I never solved, I never had a better backpack or a better jacket or a better product by simply putting an inspector on the line. And saying, you know what, look at every hundredth product that comes off that line once a year. We're going to be good to go. Um, That's important. It's called quality control. And you do that, you get information. What's really also important is you do quality assurance. You engineer processes. You engineer materials. You do things proactively. You do a lot of testing. You make sure you have process really, really dialed all the way through. That's quality assurance. Um, it's the common, and actually, quality control is a component of quality assurance. And you, you same concept when you talk about chemistry, you can't test your way out of this problem. Um, um, you need to actually have a system that ensures that you do this better. So, we at Blue Sign achieve our, 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 our success by being a system. We work with chemical suppliers, we work with mater- materials manufacturers, and we work with brands. And what we do with them is we really go in and learn everything we can about them. We do an audit, we understand how exactly, not so much what chemistry they're making, how do they go, make about, go about making chemistry? And are they even confident at making chemistry? Because oftentimes the answer is no, they're not. And they need to improve on how they make chemistry. Then only when they have demonstrated that, do we say, OK, great. What chemicals are you making? What are the actual substances? And let's dive into the details of all the formulations to better know that. So only when all of that comes together do you have what we refer to as blue sign-approved chemistry. So you'll see a pattern here, because we do the exact same thing with our materials manufacturer. Before we even say, what are you making polyester? Are you making nylon? Are you making cotton, Lyocell, whatever? Are you even good at making it? Do you know? Remember, 90% of the chemistry is not going to go out with the bulk roll of all the fabric. How are you managing that? Are you actually taking care of your effluent? Are you, you know, are you, um, your water, are you doing direct discharge are you dye stuff to your, the environment? Or do you have a full process to actually manage that well? So we do that in the first phase of that. And then we say, OK, great. What, chem- what materials are you making? And what's your chemical recipes to actually make those chemistries? So when you see a blue sign approved material, it's not because we tested it. I mean, someone had tested it. That's true. It's not saying no testing has gone on. But it's a process all the way up to that, all the way back to the molecules. So it is incredibly robust. Um, to actually ensure that that integrity is in that particular product, and the last bit, and this is the area that I get to do, I work to work with brands. I assess brands, and I have assessed brands all over the world on how they actually manage chemical integrity. Um, and um and oftentimes there's some big gaps between where they are and where they need to be. Uh, and I help them understand those gaps and then prioritize those gaps the addressing those gaps. And then closing those gaps. And then we work with them on product development, supply chain analysis, really working with them to better understand how they actually do a better job of managing their risk in chemistry across the entire network. So this is it. This is the blue sign system in a nutshell, one picture. So when you see it and you hear about it, there's nothing else on the planet or any other space that comes close to this. So that entire view of the ocean of options, Blue Sign is the one that really, really matters. So think of it as actually the entire system of the places where chemistry is made, where chemistry is applied, and brands that are making the choices around function and finish and all that that drives the chemistry that goes into product. Um, These are some of the chemical companies we work with, and you may have heard of some of them, but most of them might be not household names to you. These are some of the material manufacturers we work with. A lot more that are household names, whether it's Primaloft or Polartech or Scholler or Sympatex or WL Gore. A lot of companies that are respected in this space are part of the Blue Sign system. This is just a subset of the, um, the, the uh, uh, manufacturers that are part of our system. But I'm sure you have know a lot of these because these are the brands. And this is the, I love the slide because these are the, these are the guys that I get to work with on a daily basis, and 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 um, really help them understand where they are, where their gaps are, and then really work to help them close them. And some organizations are relatively early in their journey, and some are really advanced in their journey. And with what we do with them can be very very different. But it's really about helping them be excellent. So true wisdom comes from each of us when we realize how little we understand about life, ourselves, and the world around us. This couldn't be more true about sustainability and our supply networks and all of the things that go on there. We have to really, you know, it's funny, most of the brands who are best at this here are also the most self-deprecating because they realize how much they do not know. And, And it's really, really hard to manage. So I want to finish up with just one thing here and then we can take any questions you may have. Um, This concept of PFAS uh, or DWR, because it's a really hot button issue right now. I did a presentation at OR a couple of years ago. Um, um, I did five myths. This is myth number three. Eliminating PFAS and DWR isn't an urgent issue for me right now. You may say, Seriously, brands are actually some brands. Yeah, there's some brands who are still not on top of what's going on here, um, and it is urgent and it is difficult. And if you and if you're still talking about it right now, you're already behind. Um, so, what is PFAS? Um, if you think of it as uh, uh, you know, sometimes we refer to it as PFCs or whatever. It's not, it's, it's, it's a class of chemicals. It's not a single chemical. It's, it's one of the things we apply it for and use it for is durable water repellency. Um, the important thing though, is not just about water. It's also stain and oil. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a very effective at what it does. What it's not again, it's single, a single chemical, it's thousands of them. It's, it, what is it is it is going away for all uses in everyday, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, um, but it is going away in the outdoor industry and water repellency. It's certainly not easy to replace, um, and you'll see why that is in a second. Um, and again, it's not PFCs. So we talk about banning all PFAS, no, because. This, and this is not PFAS. So, when you think of uh, a polyeth- polyethylene um, uh, jug that holds your milk or whatever, um, or the ethyl alcohol, which is a liquid in your hand sanitizer, or the propane in your barbecue, these are all what we refer to as hydrocarbons. And the point we're making here is that these three things couldn't be any more different, but they are hydrocarbons, all hydrocarbons. Similarly, PFAS. Has a solid, or liquid, or a gaseous state, and they couldn't be any more different. Between the plumber's tape that you use to, you know, in your in in plumbing, to O rings, to the PTFE, the Gore Tex in your jacket, to the um, liquid treatment. On which is becomes part of your DWR on your jacket to the Freon in your car, which is part of your refrigerant. All these are PFAS's, and they are not all going away. We're talking about focused primarily as it applies to the outdoor industry on DWR for your jacket. This is the most complicated slide in the whole bunch, but it but all it really is to, to show you is when we talk about. PFAS, what we refer to as what's a, in DWR, is what's called a fluorinated polymer. So when you hear long chain, short chain, all these things that we refer to, it really has to do with how these, think of them as the fingers that stick up, you know, from your jacket. I mean, this is at a microscopic level, so you you really can't see this or feel this, but Think of that as the water actually rests on top of that, and so so the um, the reason why it beads up and rolls off is it's incredibly slippery. It has very low um, resistance to flow, and 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 this is applied as a as a substance on your jacket or your material that is firmly and permanently bonded to that material. It works incredibly well. When it's done well, it works incredibly well. So this is. This is something that, and I just use it to share, that this is, we're talking about high levels of performance that we need to replicate without this. Again, a comb is a good example of that as well. There's many, it becomes the alphabet soup of PF, um, of things that we have banned in the past for, um, and, and, and rightfully so, because PFOA, PFOS, these are probably the most common, um, of this whole chemical class there's some really nasty history of what this has done to people. If everyone watched the movie Dark Waters, it's all about PFOA. And you'll walk away scratching your head saying, oh, my God, that is just horrible. And it's associated with us in our industry and our jackets. And we have to go away from that. But the reality is that um, uh, the pressure is going to come um, to address all of PFAS. So it's gonna be an interesting thing, um, but it's not gonna be an easy thing to replace. Um, it's not just the performance of the technology, it's also the ease of application. You know, uh, you know the, the challenge with PFAS is that it's easy to use. It's easy to apply. It, you, you basically put it on, have a curing process in the, in the, in the, in the production of the material, and it works. Um, But the alternatives do not have oil repellency. They do not have some of the functions that um, are part of PFAS. And so as a brand, you will struggle to get to the same level of performance that you had before. The good news is that there's lots of options that are available that we refer to as non-fluorinated. This is actually a picture from the blue sign um, uh, approved chemistry, 263, as of today, options that are non-fluorinated. Um, but, um, but you need to partner with your, your suppliers, your manufacturers, to actually get the levels of performance that you want. So key timeline in the, in the going away of, uh, of PFAS, um, you know, now as a brand, there's a whole bunch of things you need to be doing. You need to be knowing who your suppliers are? First thing, it's like most brands are even aren't even good at that. You saw complexity of the network, um, where it's applied. Um, uh, you know, w- you know where should you be using DWR because you don't necessarily need it in everything. Determine the nature of it. Is it PFAS or, or is it non-fluorine? Um, and get the answer. Stop using the term C zero. It, it's kind of marketing nonsense. It doesn't. It, 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 it may not be a, a, a carbon fluorine chemistry, but it does definitely contain carbon. Uh, and, and so you definitely want to be choosing chemistry that non-fluorine. And if at all possible, and you saw why, make it blue sign approved. Because um, you're going to because remember that comment about regrettable substitutions, there's plenty of regrettable substitutions. They may not be fluorine fluorine chemistry, but they may have all sorts of other things that are associated with them. And you need to make sure you choose better chemistry. Um, So start a dialogue with your, your manufacturers and be considering what non-flooring options are. You need to research performance, do field tests, fail, try again, fail again, eventually achieving success. And then by January 2025, as a as a brand, you need to have your entire portfolio out of, out of, out of DWR that's made from flooring. So just wanna finish up, obligation as a um, outdoor industry professional, because this is what you guys all aspire to be, I would assume. Become informed. You know, you're seeking a career in an industry where sustainability is a collective strategic impact. I had the pleasure, the luxury, the opportunity at REI to launch what has become the Outdoor Industry Sustainability Initiative. Um, and there's some great work that's been done there, but also in the Sustainable Power Coalition, the Tech Stock Exchange, OIA. Um, and you saw, as an industry, we need to reduce our carbon emissions by 45%. By 2030, and we don't even know how we're going to get there. Um, learn what the impacts are, where they occur, how they occur, why they occur. Um, get your instructors to make sure that every single class that you take has some aspect of sustainability built in the curriculum because it's mission critical. No matter what you become in the industry, it's really important. And we're only about two design cycles away from 2030. So we're already very, very far behind. Um, Again, recognize that it doesn't matter what you do. As a design manager or a designer, you bake in a lot of that impact through the decisions that you make. And so just be aware of that. Be humble because no one has the answers. No one has all the answers. Um, Not even the most sustainable companies you think of out there has all the answers. Um, and you need to be on a learning mode all the time. And don't stop because we've got a lot of work to do. So that's the end of my trail here. What uh, uh, questions might you have for me? And there was a lot to throw at you. I, I appreciate it. Hopefully it... Uh, oh.
2: I told them that you were going to go deep, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I told them to be prepared for it. You know what? If, while they're still maybe thinking of a couple questions, uh, several of our students were able to attend the OR show um, in Salt Lake at the beginning okay. of February. Yep. and you know, in my textile science class, I've talked about PFASs to my students, but when I went to the OR show and talked to brands, everyone... That I talked to was using. Oh, we're trying to get to C zero right now. We're only on C six. So, what? How did that morph? And um, you said it was kind of a marketing thing, just to talk with the C language or the PFCS, PFCA's. Where did that morph, and why is there a, conf- a confusion there?
1: Where did the, I'm sorry? Can you say that last bit of the question again? Where did that morph?
2: So, like, where? Yeah, where did we morph from going from the PF? ASs to yeah. having conversations of saying,
1: well, we're C6, we're going to C0. Yeah, so yeah. How well, did that happen? Well, the, the, this in and of itself can be an entire presentation. Presentation because I have lived through uh this for two decades plus. Okay. Um and um so we moved as an industry um from what we refer to as long chains. You think, remember those chains, long chain C8, PFASs in the early 2000 era uh, to mid 2000, we moved to short chain, C6, okay? Um, because we knew so many things that were bad about C8. That's where PFOA, one of the, one of the substances that's the primary actors in the movie Dark Waters. Again, I encourage you to go watch that movie um, because I watched it and 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 it it was like it was like trauma for me because I live this every day. I went to the EPA and said, "We're moving from as an industry, we're moving from long chain to short chain because we know the issues with long chain." Um, um, Tell me what you know about short chain C six, and they didn't. They couldn't. Confidential business information. And and it was frustrating because I knew in the moving in the entire industry it was it was a challenge. So there's a lot that's known about PFASs and all the different um, substances. And by the way, a lot of these problematic PFASs are not the intended substance. It's not the thing that you think of as your DWR. It's the byproduct Mm -hmm. in the production of that product. And so when, you know, back to high school chemistry, you never have a full 100% reaction. You have byproducts and impurities that are part of it. Those are the issues, those are the PFOS, PFOA, other issues that usually are associated with these chemistries. So um, that's, we we, we moved as an industry from CA to C6, thereabouts late 2007, 2008 or so. And, and, and it was a whole process of changing the entire, entire supply network because we believed that C6 was better. We were, but what, what it ended up being was a regrettable substitution. We, didn't, we just knew how bad C8 was, but we didn't know how challenging C6 and all the associated issues with that was. So what happened... And we've always had a challenge to move out of all fluorinated. The problem is that when you move out of a fluorinated chemistry into a non-fluorinated chemistry, you give up performance. (laughs) And so there's no impetus until there's strong uh, 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 NGO pressure. And probably the, 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 the nail in the coffin over the past couple of years has been regulatory. And so regulations are going to force everybody out of PFAS. And so we've kicked the can down the road as an industry for the longest time because no one wants to give up performance. Think if your, your job was marketing, saying, hey, you know what? It's, um, it's, uh, you really didn't need that high level of performance that we were advertising that you needed to, for your jacket that you just go to the, go to the market with. I mean, you may need it. You may need it in very specific environments where that high level of performance actually becomes, or lack thereof, becomes a safety issue for you. Um, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it's been a it's been a long progression that we've resisted the change because the fact is that, or is my friend used to be at, at DuPont used to tell me he goes, "Pyrorac table's not getting any bigger." And this carbon-fluorine relationship is it's why they call them the forever chemical. Once they're together, they never come apart. And if it's associated with a very toxic chemical, toxic byproduct, then you've got a real problem.
2: No, that makes sense. Thanks for some more clarification on that. There's another question from Ben in the chat. He says, "What is the current leading PFAS-free, so the non-fluorine um, DWR treatment on the market?"
1: Um, that's a hard question to answer, and I'm not, and I'm not just hedging here, because um, in the past, when you use PFAS or use long-chain or short-chain PFASs you didn't have to do a lot to prepare the material. You could actually pretty much use the material. You do normal scouring, normal fabric preparation, and then you've coated it, run it through the stenter, and you were good to go. But with the non-fluorinated options now, it really depends on the weave of the material. So, so there's, even there's 238 blue sign approved options, some of them might be better, for a specific material than others. And so this is where it really is incumbent upon the brand and the designer and the manufacturer of the materials themselves as well, really important to do the experimentation. So one's not necessarily better than the other, um, but it might be better for a specific purpose. It might be better for a specific fiber. It might be better for a specific um, weave or, or uh, preparation. So there you know, there are some really respectable companies and and we could go back to uh you know the slide with all the chemical company the huntsmans the the uh, cht um the um uh um the um uh the, the comores um are making good non fluorinated i don't use the term c0 it's again an incorrect term um non fluorinated non pfas um, DWRs. Stick with companies that you know. Stick with companies, and honestly, this is one, I don't, I don't always say this, but, but, but with a brand, I say if there's one area I'm going to tell you, don't use anything else but a blue sign approved, it's DWR. Guess, because you do not want a regrettable substitution.
2: All right, there's another question here. How do you feel about the legalized Gore-Tex movement?
1: How do I feel about the what again? The legalized Gore-Tex movement. L- legalized Gore-Tex movement?
2: Ben, you might have to jump on and explain that one. Yeah, what what,
1: what that do you mean either. by that? I mean, well, Gore-Tex, Gore-Tex is a PFAS. So the Gore-Tex is what's called PTFE. So it's another one of those PFs uh, or, 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 or P. It, it is a... It is under the umbrella of, PT, uh, of PFAS. Um, in fact, it's really called EPTFE, it's expanded PTFE, um, which gives it its breathability. Um, so, in the state of California uh, and, and, and other places where PFAS is going to be regulated out for textiles and apparel, PTFE will no longer be available. So, uh, So, Gore-Tex, being a primary supplier of a membrane, a PTFE, a PFAS membrane, is very much at the task of um, coming up with an alternative. And here's, again, back to this. I'm going to use this statement over again. Regrettable substitution. So um, one of the things that um, um, there's been a lot of industry uh, connection, collaboration on this thing here, just because you've moved out of PTFE. First of all, by the way, PTFE is the same thing as plumber's tape. It's the same thing. Gore-Tex, one of the primary markets for Gore-Tex is not the outdoor industry. It's medical. And so there's many people with PTFE inside of them. It's inert. It's not, it's not laced with these chemical substances that we're, you know, that we're consuming. So not all PFAS is of the same risk. Uh, it would not make it at medical grade if it was. Um, the problem is the process of making it can be really, really nasty. And Gore has done an amazing job of, of regulating, process to make it in the most closed loop, best possible way. And then I can say this because they're part of the blue sign system. They have been evaluated for that. Um, So not all PTFE is done at the same level that Gore is doing it. But also, not all alternatives for PTFE are devoid of issues. It might not be the PFAS issue. But it is very much, if you've heard of the term um, solvents, and particularly what we refer to as CMR solvents, carcinogenic, mutagenic, reproductive solvents. The number one replacement for a, a PTFE membrane is going to be a polyurethane membrane. And if that's done in the wrong environment, in the wrong way, with a lot of these solvents, which are part of the process of making it, you can be. This is my point, and actually, myth number five in that presentation I did at OR was PTF or, or PFAS is the biggest human health issues that, health issue that we face in the outdoor industry. It's not the biggest he- human health issue is polyurethane and and CMR solvents, and most brands are not paying attention to this because workers to this day are being exposed. Uh, on these solvents that are known carcinogens, that are known reproductive toxins. And, 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 and because it's not an end consumer issue, it's actually a worker issue. It's actually um, uh, doesn't always see the light of day.
2: Um, there was a question and then it, it popped off, but so we have some some of our students in here who are kind of specializing on the hard goods side of the outdoor product industry. So maybe some of your REI background can help with this one.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, with our textiles, we have blue sign certifications and that, that list of other certifications that you showed us in the ocean there. Um, yeah. Are there certifications that our hard goods students should be aware of that also monitor chemistry?
1: Yeah, um, it's a great question. Um, so... Um, it's true that Blue Sign is highly focused on textiles. However, the system works for any material, any uh, supply chain. Uh, it's really about input stream management, as we refer to it. Um, so um, we actually do certify a lot of hard good products, but usually in support of um, textiles, so zippers, YKK. Uh, you know, um, buckles, the plastics, the, the the resins, all the things that go in there uh, require pigments and things that go into there. So there are some places where blue sign is actually applicable in the hard goods space as well. Um, aside from that, it's a great question because there isn't an equivalent. Well, you know, people have told us, many of our brands have said, we need you in Tent poles. We need you in pick a category. Um, and um, there isn't an equivalent to Blue Sign. Um, we could do it. The challenge is that textiles is a target rich environment. And, um, and, and we have our hands full doing just uh, the areas that we are focused on. Um, I, I, I will say that one of our good partners is Burton, uh, Burton Snowboards. They wanted wanted us to certify of the snowboard. Um, We did a project with them to actually work when they're snowboard factories. So the process is still the same. What I will say is probably may not a certification, but some of the emerging, um, how do you oversee environmental health and safety um, in facilities? Because a lot of the, for example, in the metal treatment space, um, we're not talking about elimination of toxic chemistry because for metal treatment um, for whether it be anodization or plating or a whole bunch of things like there, you use toxic chemistry. It's part of the process. You know, it's, it's, it, is it a question of getting better cyanide? Um, what really matters is um, environmental health and safety at the facilities because even though cyanide was used in that metal treatment, it's not an issue for the end consumer. It's an issue for the worker. And so what you look for is how do you manage the work environments and ensure that those are done in the best possible way.
2: Excellent. Okay, I think we have two questions, and that's probably all the time we'll have um, one of these says, okay, something that comes to mind with PFASs versus non-PFASs is the durability. I've used a hand-me-down jacket, or Gore-Tex jacket from the mid-2000s quite frequently for the past five years, and it's held up extremely well. Mm-hmm. Both structural integrity and waterproofing. Do non-PFASs materials have a similar durability and lifespan? If not, how do you weigh the pros and cons of a more chemically intensive but outlasting material versus a less chemically intensive but shorter lifespan?
1: This is a perfect question. So thank you for this one, because this is, this is the conundrum that we face in this particular space. And it's one that maybe regulators are not paying attention to. So W.L. Gore argued for years, because they had done life cycle assessment, LCA, a lot of LCA work. And they proved with unequivocally that using a fluorinated DWR is going to reduce the footprint of a jacket or a product because it, it, it lengthens the durability, the lifespan of that jacket. And, and if you take all impacts into consideration, the water impact, the energy impact, the carbon impact, and the chemical impact, That And you you come up with a perspective that says, what's truly the right thing to do here? Sometimes it's use the more intense chemicals because it prolongs the life of the product and you actually have a lower overall impact. It's part of the challenge that we face as an industry coming up with a common tool. If you've been familiar with what we refer to as the HIG index, is it tries to do that is it tries to balance all the different impacts. The problem with, with, with regulatory is that the, it's, it's very emotional. And it's like, okay, this is a forever chemical. And it's true. There's some real nasty things associated with PFASs. However, they also, if, you, if we eliminated PFAS tomorrow, you can throw out your phone, you're never gonna fly, you're not gonna drive, you're not gonna do a whole bunch of other things. And so I'm not arguing that it's a great chemistry and we need to keep it, but the reality is that it's way more complicated than we make it seem.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that gives us lots of other things to consider. And then the last question, um, in working with brands and designers, what are some of the questions you ask that we could ask ourselves or address as future designers entering the industry?
1: You know, many people ask me, what's the, you know, Kevin, we're going to, we're adding a sustainability function in our organization, and our brand. Great. What, what, what should we do? What, what's our, what's our, what's our, um, uh, what's what, what the what's the role that I need to add? And it's really, it's an easy answer for me. Um, supply chain analyst. And they say, no, 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 we're doing a sustainability person. We want to have a sustainability function. I say supply chain analyst. Um, Myth number one that I shared at the OR show was that you know your supply chain. Um, And the 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 thing that I would be asking or working with brands because many say that you know again back to the how many water bottles have I kept out of the landfill? You know this whole kind of pushback against greenwashing. Um, This is a complicated topic a complicated subject and you cannot move to the 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 high level performance if you don't set the right foundation and so be working with brands and, and and this is the thing that i do with brands all the time most of the stuff i do with brands is really about foundational stuff know your supply chain know your materials know this know that know that you know, because we don't get to the more complicated things until you've set that right foundation. So I would is, if, if I was asking brands, it's really um, it's how do you prioritize and make this not just simply for the marketing effort of being more sustainable, but truly that you really understand it, and you've built a foundation from which you can be able to do this. Because you know, whether I've I've scared you or turned you off by the that saying that we are so far behind, we are we do we have so many things we need to do. When you you're being a part of an industry that we, we said we were going to be as an industry climate positive by 2030. No, no. I mean, does it mean that we shouldn't be trying? pulling out everything we can do to make it happen. No, we should be, but we've got so much work to do.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, Kevin, for the knowledge that you've shared with us, your whole career, your experience, everything was just so awesome. I love that you um, brought up um, the PFASs because that is a big, big, huge hot topic, big talking point around the industry right now. And uh, thanks for your time. This was fantastic. This was awesome.
1: Yeah. Thanks for the attention. I appreciate everyone taking the time and, and thank you for being the next generation to help solve these problems.
0: Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the outdoor product design and development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at usuoutdoorproduct, Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.